Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hey, Eric. Today we have a conversation between Medea and I and Jordi Rosenberg, who is the author of Confessions of the Fox, which is a kind of interesting, almost Nabokovian novel in terms of like its footnotes, also maybe a little David Foster Wallace-ish, about basically contemporary trans professor who's working in a university and discovers in an archive the kind of early, some journals from the historical figure Mac the Knife that suggest that Mac the Knife was in fact trans. So who is Mac the Knife again? So Mac the Knife is the kind of popular name by which Jack Shepard went. So Jack Shepard was a very kind of notorious criminal and Not thief. Jack the Ripper. Not Jack the Ripper. Okay. No, another, so it's Jack br- Shepard, known Shepherd, as Mac the Knife. Mac the Knife. Okay. <laughs> There's also the song, Mac. Oh, Mac the Knife, yeah, exactly. Together. So it's all, it's all fits together. Okay, I see. But what I really enjoyed about this particular interview was getting to talk to Jordy not only about kind of what it means when we reclaim characters, you know, mm-hmm. either as queer people or as trans people from history, and kind of how we do that in fiction and what the stakes of that are. And also just kind of how he thinks about contemporary trans identity, working in the archive, all those mm-hmm. kind of things, mm-hmm. which I obviously love. Right. Do you come across a lot of historical figures that you're like, oh God, they're so gay? Yes. Well, and it it becomes I think or we so end trans. up I, I, I think I we end up talking about this in the interview. But yes, this is a thing, and it is also kind of intellectual and historical problem because we're talking about people, especially if you move earlier than the 20th century, who would not have understood those labels the way that we use them. So they mm-hmm. would never understood themselves, for example, as transgender or certainly as gay or as lesbian, right? So in some ways, because all of those kind of identities they exist, the experiences exist, right. but the identities and the labels that we apply to them and what we expect of that identity is very much a kind of late 19th and early 20th century phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Starts in Germany. where the, the history, Yes, with Magnus Hirschfeld yeah. and the sexological research. Yes, Germany, kind of England also. And Freud is another one that's very much starting to try to figure out what sexual identity might be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So anyways, <laughs> listeners can, can look forward to hearing all of this egghead conversation uh, when we cut to the interview with Jordy. And the next voice that you'll hear will include LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher, myself, and our guest, Jordi Rosenberg. We're delighted to have Jordi Rosenberg in the studio with us today during his brief trip to SoCal from the hinterlands of the East Coast. Jordy is a transgender writer and scholar, as well as an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where he teaches 18th century literature and gender and sexuality studies. He joins us today to talk about his debut novel, Confessions of the Fox, published last year by One World. The novel takes up the story of Jack Shepard, the notorious 18th century British thief and escape artist known popularly as Mac the Knife, but with a twist. Jack is a transgender man, and much of the story centers around his wild exploits and his journey to find the love, acceptance, and finally, the body that he deserves. These new revelations are discovered by Dr. Voth, a present-day scholar of gender, sexuality, and 18th century literature, 
who finds Shepard's confessions in an archive. What ensues is a very literary tale by turns comical and heartbreaking that opens up all manner of questions about our relationship to history, the production of knowledge, and the way power is always lurking, sometimes not just in the background, to fix us in place. Welcome to the show, Jordy. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so first, would you mind giving readers a sense of how this novel sounds and just read us a short excerpt? Okay, sure. I will read this excerpt from the very beginning of the opening chapter. Very briefly, I will say that Jack Shepard is standing on the gallows stage in front of many thousands of people, as was the custom at the time in the early part of the 18th century. He's about to be executed. And there are some questions about whether or not he may sort of miraculously survive the execution. He's hoping, perhaps, that his comrade who's standing out in the crowd might be able to get to his body after he's executed and deliver it to a quack surgeon to be resuscitated. But he doesn't know if that's going to happen. He's very anxious. So I'll just read the paragraph where the executioner is approaching. He's standing, I need to say, on a horse cart, as again was the custom. And the executioner would then whip the horse. And when the horse pulls the cart, the person standing on it then would have the cart pulled out from under him and be hung. So that's what's about to happen here. I was using these 18th century dictionaries of slang words, underworld slang. Most of the underworld slang describes either words for sex or erotogenic zones or different kinds of crimes that you could commit. So if you don't understand a word and what I'm about to read it, it refers probably to genitalia. Heavy footfall approaches the executioner. His hand is on his whip, slapping leather against his palm with each nearing step. Jack has seen enough executions to know by the sound that this is the last suspended moment before he lays into the horse and the cart is yanked out from under him. He'd long entertained the possibility of dying by hanging, most rogues had, but in all his imaginings he'd never thought he'd be hanged on his knees and quaking uncontrollably. He focuses on the crowd's roar, hang the politicians instead. The executioner hisses the whip in three long circles through the sawdust surrounding the stage. The executioner is a showman, letting the crowd build until just before the second that the spectacle turns into furor and they are uncontainable. At that precise moment, the executioner will let them have it. He always lets them have it, and he'll pull the cart. Oh, God of the streets, God of the underworld, God of rogues. God of women, God of softness, God of sex shaking, God of muff and tuzzy muzzy and the fruitful vine. Oh, God of the boiling spot, please bury me at the foot of her bed. Please, so I can still see her, still hear her murmuring, still sense her. God of the monosyllable, please let me still smell her and feel the throb of my unnameable something when I do. Oh, death that comes for me, Oh, God of the watermill, at least she once took me in her hands and mouth. At least she once spread her legs for me. At least I once dilated with her musk in every pore. And at least once was I thus found and lost. Thank you so much for reading that. And that should give listeners an idea of the book and the language in the book. One thing that I just wanted to start with is Jack Shepard was, in fact, a real person. And could you just very quickly tell us who this character is, and how you came upon him. 
Okay, yeah. So Jack Shepard was a real person. He was the 18th century Britain's most famous prison break artist. It was said that at the time, more people knew his name than knew the name of the queen. He was an extremely popular folk hero. He had broken out of prisons, including Newgate Prison, London's kind of most notorious prison at the time, four times. And there were these spectacular escapes that were often sometimes depicted visually in sort of like early versions of like comics or graphic novels. He had a partner in crime about whom we know much less, who was given the name or took the name Edgeworth Bess. She is given a different name in my book, but in any case, he broke Bess out of prison very spectacularly. And in the early 18th century, minor property crime, which is all the crime he was doing, stealing like handkerchiefs and stuff, carried uh, capital punishment. So he ultimately was arrested for a minor, I think the last arrest might have been for like holding up a stagecoach, but I can't recall quite, and condemned to death. And there was a lot of speculation even after he was executed that maybe he hadn't died, maybe he'd managed to escape, maybe he was supernatural. There were a lot of letters to the editor, essentially, at the time, people claiming they had seen him. There were early versions of crime blotters in which women, if they were caught with allegedly stolen material on their person, they would say, like, Jack Shepard gave it to me. There was this idea that he really got around and was kind of this legendarily sexy figure. Sometimes there were letters written as if they were by him from the afterlife. So he was this really popular figure that then John Gay created the Beggar's Opera, which became a kind of an opera based on his life and his legendary competition with London's most famous thief catcher, Jonathan Wilde. Wilde was trying to capture him. Shepard was trying to evade him. Gay's Beggar's Opera became the most attended opera in London at that time. And then Brecht's Threepenny Opera in 1924 was also based on on the life of Shepard. So there's a couple of different things that I want to ask you about in terms of a queer or a trans relationship to history in terms of representation. And I guess one place to start is actually with the language itself. And one of the many delights of your novel is its playfulness with language. So we get, for example, as you just gave us, a number of historical slang terms for the vagina in just the first few pages. But there's also a kind of, most tellingly maybe for the novel, a way in which words like fox used to mean man in Shepherd's Day, but it's more kind of gender nonspecific, I guess we could say, in contemporary conversation. And because you have the authorial voice, or at least one of them, is a scholar of transgender studies and 18th century literature living presumably in the present, that voice is very attentive to the way that language changes in meaning and across time as kind of a social institution. So I'm wondering if you can talk just a little bit about the role of language and shaping identity in this novel? Thank you for that question. So, well, I mean, the first thing that I want to say is that when you look at a lot of the archival material on Shepard, not even mostly John Gay's opera or Brecht's, but I mean kind of the occasional material. There was a lot of like anonymous hack biographies, fake autobiographies, again, these letters that I was describing, reports of citing him, a lot of that material described Shepard in a way that we might now understand as like 
potentially gender nonconforming. I'm not suggesting he necessarily was trans, but part of his sexiness, and this did appeal to me, the way that his sexiness was described was often described specifically because he had a very kind of non-traditional gender comportment. He was described as very small and slight and yet very sexy. This was exciting to me. Part of his slightness was also a way of describing how he was able to get out of spaces so magnificently. But that aspect that's in the primary source material didn't get picked up on really by Gay or Brecht, the major works about Shepard. So I wanted to kind of just play on that aspect. And one of the ways that I did want to do that was through language. So, you know, this is a period in which medical science and pseudoscience, Western science, is trying to classify the sexual body using language and scientific classification. So if you look at these documents from the period, one of the characters is based on one of these kind of like quack scientists. They're trying to almost in a Linnaean sense classify what a sex body is and pin it down in a way that's obviously been very vexing to many people for centuries now. So one of the things that I wanted to do was take these slang dictionaries, which also in a way are doing this classificatory project of associating slang words to certain body parts, certain genitalia. So in the slang dictionaries, all that language, yes, that I quoted in the beginning, for example, tuzzy, muzzy, fruitful vine, boiling spot, the monosyllable, the watermill, that's all translated to what we now think of as like assigned female at birth genitalia. But one of the things that I wanted to do, and this gets to your question, was disrupt the presumption that that's what those words are referring to. So by the middle of the book, I'm thinking and hoping that readers are getting the sense. And if they don't get the sense, the editor character steps in to make kind of like a pedantic point about this, that, oh, these slang words, at least in this document, this fictionalized fake autobiography of Shepard are referring to any genitalia. So that was like just like a small disruption of history and taking that kind of classificatory language and turning it upside down and also just creating kind of a deluge of language to describe kind of an overload to kind of absurdify the idea of fixed binary sex that's supposedly indicated by genitalia and also just to kind of I don't know, make it sort of like a simultaneously lush and comic project of disruption, if that makes sense. Actually, just to follow up on that, it strikes me that that is perhaps a tension also within the book because there's this moment where Jack is caught. He's sort of physically just caught by this man who's lying by the side and he makes him speak in cant to prove that he is not, in fact, a constable. So there's this moment in the book where having access to a particular kind of language or knowing how to use a particular kind of language means entrance within to a certain group and actually it kind of means like bodily harm or not bodily harm. And that really struck me as a moment where there seemed to be something very literal sort of at stake, which is Jack's actual well-being, but also a moment where the kind of work that the editor character is doing and the kind of academic work around language becomes much more urgent in a way because it, knowing something and knowing how to talk about something means survival, essentially. Yeah, I accept that reading. It seems true to me. 
I mean, here too, I think there also it was kind of like a utopian subversion of the materials that we have at hand. These slang dictionaries, and there was an explosion of popularity of them. Like you might think of them as something like urban dictionary, but in physical form. And as the printing industry was developing in the early 18th century, there was like a heavy marketing of these slang dictionaries. What was their purpose and who could afford to buy them? And so my feeling, my like scholarly feeling about these slang dictionaries is that they're a little bit dubious in the sense that maybe they're trying to give like people with expendable income this idea that they're like all junior little police deputies and they can recognize rogues on the street. Because, of course, remember, this is a moment when Britain doesn't have a municipal police force yet. Like there's no even municipal police until the end of the 18th century. So there are only private thief catchers. So it's totally possible that like ordinary bourgeois people want to feel like little mini detectives. So on that level, I think those slang dictionaries need to be subverted too. And what I wanted to do with them was use them in their most utopian version, the way that you're describing, just to kind of indicate a kind of like community in speak that maybe we're familiar with as just living in queer community. Like maybe I thought of it a little bit like, I'm going to resignify these to work as like a most utopian leftist, anti-capitalist version of like hanky codes, if that makes sense. Did you ever find yourself sort of just using them on your own like day to day and just regular normal conversation? People ask that. The only thing that really stuck with me was Fox. And then sillily enough, not even a meaning that got into the text. You redescribed Eric how Fox is using the text and I, I liked that. And that did come out of my sense that, oh, like, huh, this has been a very gender switchy term over centuries. And that intrigued me. But another usage of the word fox, which I can't believe I forgot to put in there, was that they would often use get fox to mean get drunk. And I love that. It's a great word for get drunk. And that's the only one that's made it into my parlance. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Jordi Rosenberg, author of Confessions of the Fox. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're talking to filmmaker Werner Herzog, who's in the studio today to recommend a book for us. The book he's going to recommend is The Peregrine by J.A. Baker. So, Werner, I had read somewhere that you had recommended for all filmmakers to read a book called The Peregrine. Yes. Why do you recommend that book? I would not only recommend it uh, to filmmakers, but to everyone who is uh, somehow in imaginative work or artistic work. The Peregrine, um, it's a completely obscure book uh, written in the late 60s by an unknown author, J.A. Baker, but it has um, incredible passion for the object of observation, and in this case, uh, peregrine falcons, the kind of compassionate scrutiny of the world, of a limited scope of the world, and the caliber of prose. We have not seen prose since Joseph Conrad, 
mm. uh, for a hundred years almost. We haven't seen pros of this caliber. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, insight in how we as filmmakers should approach looking at the world and incorporating it into our prose or into our filmmaking. That was a book recommendation by Werner Herzog. The book again is The Peregrine by J.A. Baker. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Jordi Rosenberg, author of Confessions of the Fox. Okay, so while we're thinking about the utopian, thinking about the historical and shifts, I think it's not a mistake to say that the novel is actually quite saturated with questions about history. So that can be, on the one hand, questions about what history tells us and what it can tell us, what it hides from us also, and then how it sometimes gets taken away from us by networks of hegemonic power or discourse, taxonomization, classification, those sorts of things, which in the novel we might associate with like Pequod Publishers and Pharmaceuticals, a company name and brand name that I find really funny, and also with Dean Surveillance, another kind of figure of control. So one of the things that I wanted to have you talk a little bit about is what history and historical representation means to queer folks and to trans folks. Because, you know, if you follow, for example, scholars like Christopher Nealon saying that we're always, Heather Love also has a version of this, that we're always looking in the past for things that would explain us in the presence and give us some kind of groundedness when, as queer people, we oftentimes feel very ungrounded in the kind of world that we exist in, which is not oftentimes a world made for us. Yeah, this is a tricky and kind of contradictory question. On the one hand, yes, there's a desire for history. On the other hand, I think even if we were to find some archive that suddenly contained all the supposed truths of our history, it could not, it couldn't tell us the entire story. And so one of the scholars that the editor character quotes is a scholar, Anjali Arandakar, who's written a great critique of the fetish for archives from a post-colonial and queer perspective where Anjali says, I'm afraid I might get this quote wrong off the top of my head, but it's something like this idea that if we can find a body in the archives, then we'll find a subject of history. And we know that no such thing is really possible. Sometimes more often than not, an archive can hide more than it reveals. And these are structures of discourse and institutions that are shaped by certain dominant logics, more often than not. That said, it's very important to have sort of radical archival practices, and we do have, and we're very lucky to have them. But I think the book was trying to navigate some of the tricky ground in there and make a claim for the importance of speculation as the kind of like utopian third term. When you're dealing with these terrible documents of just centuries of brutality and the birth of British imperialism and the birth of the police force, more often than not, you're just getting like a constant stream of like fake debates between all bourgeois speakers, you know. And that was one of the things that precipitated the work because I was looking at histories of the death penalty. And there were these fake debates between like political economists like Bernard de Mandeville, who was basically like, oh, well, the Dutch are great capitalists. And what they've done is propertize 
bodies of executed people to do scientific research on. We should do that here if we want to be as cool as the Dutch, as good capitalists as the Dutch. And then you get counter arguments that are just as horrible, but they look like a debate. So counter arguments would be we shouldn't execute prisoners for property crimes. We should transport them to the colonies to serve as indentured labor where they'll probably die anyway. But before they die, hopefully they can dispossess some indigenous people. So when you have like a historical relationship to those archives, it's very depressing. And I think at a certain point I was just, yeah, I could write that history from a scholarly perspective, but I was just driven to a kind of a utopian solution around injecting fictional and speculative aspects into that history because so many of the documents that we have are just miserable. Yes, I totally agree with that. I I love the way that you staged a series of kind of almost impossible transactions there, like what we desire and what like we we run up against. I think that one of the places that you preserve a kind of wonderful openness is in this term. I believe Bess is the one that says it first, but Jack kind of takes it into himself and that's something, right? And that, on the one hand, kind of explodes the post-Enlightenment rush to classification, right? For which something would be a horrible thing, right? That it's like, but it, it I mean, everything is something, but we need it to be this thing. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about something as that which gives us access to a non-binary and therefore potentially, though, in, and I'm sure you feel the same way in, in the wake of Foucault and Butler, I'm always concerned and suspicious about what is liberation, but that kind of gives us access to the spectrum of gender and sexual identity, to say of no other identities, that many of us actually live, regardless of how we identify, right? So is something a kind of place where we can get to a kind of, if not an alterity, a kind of everythingness that is its own way of both marking our reality and also giving us a place to go for when things don't fit. So, yeah. So one of the things that I was thinking about, about, that's a great question. Thank you. But the early 18th century is this is this moment of, again, like a transformation in thinking about dominant paradigms of what the body is in England. So one of the documents that I was looking at was by, as I said, one of these pseudoscientists who, who becomes the character Evans in here. And that's based on James Parsons, who was a real person who wrote this kind of like so-called medical textbook on hermaphrodism. And one of the things that he was arguing was around this, what he saw as a kind of a necessary secularization of the body. So in the, in the past, he's saying, we used to think of these people as gender monsters, what were called chimeras, just supernatural gender monsters. And he says, this is a paraphrase, but he essentially says, I don't believe gender monsters exist. I don't believe chimeras exist. I believe that these are people with medical abnormalities that can be so-called corrected. So you see, again, this is another moment where it's like a supposed debate, but both sides are, are very brutal in different ways. Again, his aim is to classify and then quote-unquote correct. So I um, was kind of interested in, well, first of all, I was interested in having some revenge enacted upon that character in the course of the novel. And then the other thing was kind of getting at a kind of un unclassifiable but 
erotically charged concept of non-binary embodiment, whether that's trans or or whatever. At the at this period, we these categories don't really fit in the 18th century. But a friend of mine had described the entire novel, and I didn't mind this no- description as oh, this is essentially femme worship and apologizing. That's like the whole novel. And in a way, what I really liked is that what I was trying to get at was that like, was a certain kind of relationship of trans masculinity or butchness to femmes and letting femmes name us, which is like a very delightful relationship in the book, Bess names Jack's genitalia, just something. And that's just like this like erotically charged kind of like, you know, gift, I guess. And I, I mean, so just like very sentimentally, I, that was sort of what I was trying to get at. And I was trying to get around um, these other like dominant discourses that are like either you're a gender monster or, or you're diseased. And sometimes it's pleasurable to have like a woman say like, you are a gender monster and I really like it. So that's just like a secret private thing. People like that. Some people like that. Sort of following up on that, well, I have a few questions. But first being, what uh, what drew you to the 18th century as your area of study? Oh, well, this was a, a, <laughs> a misbegotten idea that happened several decades ago when I was becoming a scholar of the 18th century. I'll give you an answer. It's not, it's going to be boring. It simply was that I was like a very committed Marxist and Marx hated 18th century political economy. And I, for some weird reason, decided I wanted to understand, if I only to understand Marx, I had to understand even what he hated. And then I realized I actually did not need to do that, but it was too late. Here I had become a scholar of the 18th century. So I'm sorry, it's not a very like exciting reason. It might, yeah, anyway, that's what happened. No, I actually think that's that is kind of an an ex, or an interesting reason. I don't know if a uh, choice of scholarly study can ever be termed um exciting. Um, <laughs> but it's it's funny to, that you went into it because you wanted to know the enemy, sort of. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then the other thing that I wanted to ask you, I mean, and, and you just said this is a, a sort of a private moment that maybe a lot of people have, but was there a time for you because for Jack that's really formative? When he finally hears, well, one, um, he says the name out loud. And his name prior to becoming Jack is never, we don't really know it. Was there a formative moment for you that was like that? I, I know. Yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that. I guess I would just say, yes, I'm sure there were many such moments. But but in the interest of the privacy of the, the persons who... <laughs> who were involved in these moments. I won't comment further, but I yeah. will say, I mean, I think part of the interest here for me um, was that very important um, for trans people, obviously, to have a form of gender, sex and gender self-determination. We are whatever we say we are. However, I was really trying to get at this sense in which this so-called self-determination is really kind of a relational experience. It's about being in community, being recognized by other people who love you or care for you. And so I really was not, despite certain mainstream pressures around publishing, not not that interested in writing like 
the trajectory to like self-determined manhood story that um, sometimes is a it cuts out some of the more um, collective aspects of the actual political reality of of what it means and what is necessary to survive, if that makes sense. And I'm I'm wondering if we can back up a little bit, um, though I think that this does get into some questions about authenticity that I always find to be non-starters, but it seems like the rest of the world is very interested in that sort of thing. And so if we can talk about kind of the two figures, one is the dean of surveillance that I talked about earlier and his kind of relationship and Dr. Voth's relationship to Pequod publishers and pharmaceuticals. So I'm wondering how these figures kind of reveal tensions around quote-unquote authenticity that still seem to be an assault not only on the, the bodies and lived experiences of transgender people, but also an assault on kind of queer historical work because there's so much presumption of kind of cis heterosexuality as the, the baseline universal experience. And in this way, I kept thinking as I, as I was reading Confessions of the Fox about the controversy surrounding E.J. Levy's The Cape Doctor, which is like, you're familiar with this controversy, in which the author who's writing historical fiction genders as female an historical figure, Dr. James Miranda Berry, whom many understand to be transgender, avant la lettre, obviously. So can you talk about the ways in which authenticity maybe is still perhaps either a ruse or a false site of battle for a kind of queer and trans history? Well, there's many different questions, I think, contained in your question. I don't want to, and I can't speak much about the E.J. Levy situation because I, like, became aware. Of, I'm not really on Twitter, and I became aware of it, like, the day it happened, and I've not followed up on it, though, I mean... So I, I can't really speak authoritatively about it, but I, I do believe that people should be, you know, acknowledged in the sex and gender that they say that they are. And But in terms of my sense of transgender history, uh, people who are participating in colonial military projects are not like my dear trans ancestor to me. Okay, so I think something you're getting at with that question has to do with uh, something I was kind of, thinking through around uh, mainstream publishing and certain pressures and demands for authenticity in terms of self-narration, that that's, you know, I mean, this is like just a very kind of like pragmatic thing. It's much easier for them to know how to sell a memoir that poses itself as a kind of, you know, self-bearing building of authenticity. That's fine. But and the reason they know how to sell that is because they have comps for that, right? And they didn't have comps for trans fiction. And so one of the things that was like incredibly moving to me is that my relationship to my publishers was very different than Voss' relationship to Pequod Publisher. Um, I will say that Random House and the imprint One World in particular were incredible because my editors at One World never, ever asked um, what's true and what's not true. What they were interested in was supporting trans artists in writing fiction and being given the ability to speculate as artists just like any anybody else. But 75% of the people that my agent and I showed the book to said, if this was a memoir, we'd buy it. And and I, so I have to give credit to my agent too, who never said like, but can you just write a memoir? 
In other words, they just, no, they just were like, if this person would just write a memoir and and knowing nothing about me, I'm a nobody. If, if they could just write a memoir, we'll buy it. And my agent never said like, could you just write a memoir? Never said that. And One World never said like, what's true and what's not true. It was very important to them. And it was very important to me to be able to just write speculative fiction. But that was, that's like a harder sell in the, in the industry. So, so I got, I think that does go to your question about authenticity because there's just a very palpable thirst for marketing precisely that. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, that's, you know, the, the trans theorist Vivian Namaste said, I think it was in 2000, something like that autobiography was the only genre in which transsexuals were going to be allowed to speak. And I'm like not even against autobiography. I myself am working on a sort of like a, a memoir with a very fictional conceit right now, but um, nobody wants to feel like that's the only thing they're allowed to say, right? Yeah. Picking up on what we had talked about a little bit very briefly is one of the things that your book really makes clear, I think, is the presence of colonialism within England itself. Right, that you don't have to go anywhere to see a colonialist narrative take shape. Because one of the main characters, Bess Khan, is what um, is called over and over in the book a Lascar. Is that how one might pronounce that term? And so, so I wanted to ask you about one, I think, in a lot of the narratives of 18th century England, we don't really see that unless you really dive in. You know, even in Jane Austen or something. It's present. It's there. You might just have to go look for it. But how did you go about making that reality and making that history a part of the fiction that you were writing? And how did you navigate that? Okay, thank you. That's a great question. Well, I mean, so, yeah, that was one of the things about being a scholar of the 18th century is that I just knew that a lot of historical fiction will totally whitewash what London was like at the time. And because I was able to draw on great histories by uh, scholars, like in particular, Gretchen Gerzina has a book, David Davidine. Um, there were many, they're all kind of listed in the, in the resources section about London was a very racially diverse city in this period, in particular because of colonialism. So the character of Bess in the story her father's uh, has been uh, press ganged into service on an East India Company ship and then abandoned like so many South Asian and Southeast Asian sailors were. They were told that they would be working return passage on these ships and then absolutely not abandoned when they get to London. And in this novel, her father makes his way out to the countryside to the Fens and marries her mother and they have Bess and that's a whole separate plot line. But in reality, there were quite a large population of South Asian and Southeast Asian sailors that had basically just been completely screwed over by the East India Company and left at the docks. And one of the things that um, I wanted to get at then as now, the frontiers and the borders are where the state is kind of working out the most normalizing, the most extreme forms of its policing. So there were particular specific privatized dock policing entities at the time that were policing these sailors as they were abandoned without any means. And if you look at like the historical legal record, often um, people would argue 
the, on the basis of these dock policing concerns that that's what a Lon London's municipal police force in general could look like and could do. And that's, I really was trying to bring out the, the very baleful echoes of that in the, in the present moment where they continue to sort of normalize extreme violence at the borders and then incorporate it within the interior. So that was, yeah, one of the, one of the, it's a big theme in the book. Okay, well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end there. But this has been such a rewarding conversation. I've loved, we've loved reading your book um, and getting a chance to talk to you about it. Um, so thank you so much, Jordy, for joining us today. We've been speaking with Jordy Rosenberg, author of Confessions of the Fox. Thanks so much to you both for having me and for asking such thoughtful questions. Thank you for coming by. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 